Welcome to Lift Your Legacy. My name is Jacob Rupp, father, husband, and rabbi. And each week, we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you unlock your inner potential and create change that will impact the future. Thank you for listening, and let's get to it. Amazing opportunity to speak to you today. Thank you very much for joining us. Jacob, the pleasure is all mine. Thanks for having me on. Fantastic. So if you could give us a little bit of background about your personal journey, the in our pre-conversation, we spoke about this massive gap that you noticed in your own rabbinic career and leadership journey and what you did to fill that and how you got to where you are today. Sure. I think some people, when they're young boys or young girls, they know they want to either be a fireman or a nurse or a doctor when they grow up. And for whatever reason, really, even as a, a boy, certainly in, as an adolescent, I knew I wanted to be a rabbi. So I went to yeshiva after high school spent many years studying, entered rabbinic school, and halfway through that experience, I had one of those light bulb moments, and from my experience, they happen when you least expect it, but I had one of those light bulb moments, and I said to myself, gosh, maybe the definition of a rabbinate should be broader than what we normally think of it. Normally, we think of rabbis as pastoral leaders, congregational leaders, and educators, but when I was canvassing the world of the organized Jewish community, I thought that I could bring a unique perspective and value by combining rabbinic education and management best practices. So I actually paused my rabbinic studies, went to graduate school at the University of Maryland for my MBA, and only once I got my MBA did I finish my rabbinic degree. And then I set out in a career of trying to make our communal organizations the very best assets that they can possibly be. And what do you think are some of the things just in general that when you get started working with an organization that you would right away say, okay, these are some of the best practices that we, we should try to implement? That's a good question. And the truth is, while every organization is unique, and that's why each organization has a raison d'etre for sure, but even though every organization is unique, there's so many points of commonality between them. And what I found is that in many organizations, there can be a confusion between flexibility, which is almost always valuable, and vagueness, which is almost always, most charitably put, as a real challenge. And I think as organizations mature and as they develop, chaos can sink in. And the attitude of, well, we did it this way yesterday, so let's do it that way tomorrow and people create portfolios of responsibility for themselves, often based around what they like to, not necessarily what their highest and best use for the organization is. And so when I've come into new organizations, I've tried before doing anything, before implementing an agenda, to first and foremost be a student, meet people, understand what makes them tick, what do they do for the organization, what do they want to do for the organization, and I think if a leader can come in with the attitude of success means doing what's right for the organization, that's not necessarily what the leader had in his head the day he took his job. So I would say stopping to listen and understand really what is the playing field that we're all on, and then trying to make sure people are empowered to do the very best work that they can. Two thoughts based on what you just said. First of all, when a lot of organizations got started or how they initially got their success, and could be that you would not agree with this, but 
um, a lot of it was that they just got started. And then as they expanded, that's when they started to figure out, okay, you know, we need, I think it's the same with a lot of entrepreneurial ventures is, you know, the guy that starts the business might not know how to scale the business, how to take care of all the personnel. He was the brainchild behind it. So when you're looking at an organization, to what extent you could say, and at what stages in the organization should one try to create best practices? And on the other hand, if one doesn't really have a background for best practices, how should someone just kind of get started? Hmm. There's a lot to unpack from that because look, you've, you've been in the nonprofit space for a long time, as have I. And whether you're running a nonprofit or you're running a typical private sector for-profit company, the day-to-day pressures are huge, especially if you have bottom line responsibility for the, let's say, financial health of the organization or for the strategic direction or the metrics of the organization. So really your question, I think, is how does somebody who's tasked with leading an organization, how do they really have time to lead if they're so stuck in the very necessary and important day-to-day elements of the job? And I really think what's worked for me, and um, I know has worked for some of my colleagues in the field, is to have a very thoughtful allocation of time. Sometimes, you know, there are, there are people who think, you know, gosh, I want to spend all my day or 80% of my day doing the things that are the most fun. And I think that's a luxury that sometimes we simply don't have. You need to take care of the day-to-day urgencies. And if for a leader, they're also wearing a second hat as the manager of the organization, they then need to find time, whether that means going off-site, whether that means having certain periods in the year where they take a couple days off from their day-to-day responsibilities to really sit and plan. And I find that concept of almost a punctuated equilibrium of you have your day-to-day, but every so often you push pause, that affords you the ability to really assess what are our strengths, what are our weaknesses, and then going about attacking them. A lot of people in our field and potentially other nonprofits or creative fields um, go into the work with a clear passion for one type of thing. And oftentimes when they're in an organization, especially as they start to grow in their position, a lot of other stuff has to happen. And so what struck me was when you said you sat down with members of an organization and you asked them, well, what did they want to do? To what extent should one be focusing on what they want to do versus what they think they should be doing? Either both, you know, if they, if they don't have a boss, if they are the boss, or if the boss is telling them something. I think especially in the nonprofit sector, passion is the fuel of our business. And, you know, typically people don't enter the nonprofit sector because that's the most amount of money they could make. It's not necessarily the most, um, uh, you know, it's not necessarily the uh, grandest or most honorful career, you know, where people start fawning over you, where you get the fancy suits and the nice corner offices. People enter the gritty world of not-for-profits because they care. And finding a way to marry their sustained passion with organizational aims is critical. Because if you just let everybody on your staff do what they want to do, they'll be happy, but your organization will lose its reason for existence. It won't, it just won't function. And at the same time, if you run your organization in such a draconian, such an authoritarian way, 
as to say, this is the organizational mandate, will give you no room to be yourself. You'll lose your good staff because your good staff will find an environment that values their creativity more. So generally, I subscribe to the notion of investing in good people and finding a way to enfranchise them in the work because, you know, just addressing what you said very straight on, Imagine you engage someone on your staff and they're, let's say, an educator, and you want them to work with a teen population, but they really want to work with a young adult population. You and I both know teens and young adults, many, many miles between them. So they want to work with teens, but you want them to work with young adults. If you treat your staff member as just a staff member and not a partner in your work, they won't ever understand the strategic value of why you want them to work with the young adult population and why you're asking them to really forgo their primary passion in order to further your agenda, which maybe isn't their agenda. So I think the first step is to make sure your staff feels enfranchised, feels respected, and everyone understands the mission. Candidly, I did a huge project for an organization that has a very meaningful place in my heart and is a very well-known Jewish organization. And it's robust. It's a multi-generational organization. It's here to stay. They do a huge amount of work all over the world. And when I came into the organization, we took time for the first time ever, I think, to canvas our faculty, to canvas our stakeholders, our program participants with very simple questions. What is our mission? We weren't looking for people to regurgitate, you know, go to the website, type it in and say, click on the mission page and say, oh, our mission is blah, blah, blah. We wanted people just to stop and say, you know the organization from your vantage point. So what do you think our mission is based on what you know of what we do? And we were really surprised that even on a staff level, the people who live and breathe what we do 24-7, there was huge confusion, actually, as to what our mission is. So if you don't even know what the mission is, how do you start talking about goals and accountability and where we should be going and how you as a critical member of the team fit into that? So really, I think clarity of purpose is a huge part of it. Did you find that there's been a lot of resistance uh, taking this, this route that you have of going and getting an MBA and then coming back into the nonprofit world? Was there a lot of resistance to that? Did you find that a lot of the lessons and the tools that you were learning in your program fit with what was going on? Or do you feel that a lot of these organizations are kind of like floundering because they don't have this component? I think, you know, a leader isn't somebody who knows the right answer. A leader is somebody who's ultimately able to achieve the right answer, who's able to, to take what is maybe academic knowledge, and I don't really mean that with a capital A as in academia, but to take theory, to take ideas, and execute them. And you could have the very best idea in your head, but if you can't get your team on board, I would argue you really weren't that impactful of a leader. And people are scared of change. And I found, and this for me was not intuitive at all, there, when you ask somebody, do, would you embrace an agenda of change? There really are only two answers, yes and no. When people say no, they're being honest. When people say yes, maybe they really think in their heart of hearts they mean yes, but they also mean no. 
change is scary because especially if you come into a new organization, people don't know you, you need first to develop a, a two-way repertoire of trust. And if you don't have a trusting relationship, you always will be looked at a little bit with a hairy eyeball. So I think trying to balance what a leader's agenda is with what is actually achievable, I like to call it the art of the doable. It's all well and good that you have ideas to, to you know, hit 100 right out of the gate. But if it can't be achieved, it's not really worth a whole lot. So I have found in certain environments, the only way to get people to embrace change is if the current status quo is failing. And then people implicitly understand, well, change will be better than failing. But let's say you're good. And the mandate is to go from good to great. So you're asking people to go on a journey with you to get some sort of incremental benefit, but to do things totally differently. So that's a harder sell, but as you and I both know, organizations that never get great don't last. In terms of the leaders that you see and, and what you brought up is tremendous that you know it's either yes, uh, dishonestly or, or no, honestly, what brings people to want to change prior to the failure point because ultimately you know that's the that's the greatest value we can offer someone is to keep them alive longer and get them better and let them not burn out but at the same time like you said it's so hard if things are sort of working for me to risk change risk failure risk looking like an idiot is you know get an egg on my face because i i, I learned a new skill set and i wasn't very good at it so how do you kind of step in at that point what do you have to say to, sure. to that kind of growth that's the real question at the end of the day. That's the, really the real question. And I think the first part, and I don't mean to sound like a broken record, but from my experience, this is just a fundamental truism, is having, there are two ways you can affect change in an organization. One is with a stick and one is with a carrot. And of course, there can be combinations and, you know, it's not binary. It's, you know, a spectrum and you can have three carrots and two sticks or three sticks and two carrots. But Always, carrots are, are better than sticks, and you'll ultimately get greater buy-in. So the first step is having the, the ability to be articulate enough and to be a visionary enough to explain why the agenda of change is necessary. And, you know, I think if you can combine that frankness, and I don't personally believe that being blunt is the opposite of being caring. I think being, being cl clear sometimes, which is a better word maybe than blunt, but being clear in purpose and not being inadvertently duplicitous, not saying one thing to one person and another thing to another person. You know, could you imagine, could you just imagine for a moment the, the complete inability to achieve in an environment where a new person's being brought on to lead a, some sort of change management effort? And some of the employees are scared. They could be junior employees. They could be senior staff. They could be at any level. And so, you know, some of the leadership of the organization says, well, I know that this person is being brought on to change, but you don't really need a change. So, so you need to be careful, really, even before day one to make sure the stakeholders and the decision makers are really committed to an agenda of change. Change never comes without a price. It never comes without a consequence. And if you're not willing to pay that price, the change agenda isn't going to be able to be affected 
And then I think you only end up introducing frustration and misunderstanding. So clarity, enfranchising everyone in the process with understanding why are we doing this? What's the vision? What is your role? And ultimately, what's in it for you? Because at the end of the day, if change is coming at the, at the expense of long-term satisfaction or long-term impact, I'm not sure how you sell that to people. And so part of being an adult and part of maturing both personally and professionally and organizationally is, billing, is being willing to sacrifice a short-term pleasure for long-term gain and success. And if you couch it in those terms, I think people intuitively can understand that. Speak for a second to the workers within an organization. I know you work extensively with leadership, but if you're working with someone that is, say, a high-value employer, just an employee in general, there's always that fear of either speaking up or being creative uh, with you know, losing your job or not being good. How, but then at the same time, I think you, you stifle your value as an employee if you don't have that courage to, to change, to get better, to sort of question authority, especially as you develop more specialty mm-hmm. and experience within an organization. So how do you work with the worker, so to speak, and, and encourage him to take risks and what are risks that are too big to take? Organizational culture really does come from the top, but it's critical at every level. At every level. The hallmark of a weak leader is paranoia and surrounding him or herself by weaker people than himself, because then he looks good by comparison. A strong leader doesn't mind dissent. A strong leader doesn't mind people who challenge the status quo and say, wait a minute, I know that we sell hammers, but there's this new thing called screwdrivers, and they're amazing. Let's talk about that. But in order for a leader, in order for an organization to foster and welcome and encourage that level of creativity, there needs to be, at the same time, a counterbalance of when decisions are made, people fall in line. At a board orientation that I gave recently to a a local nonprofit here in the mid-Atlantic region, close to Washington, DC, there was a mix of older directors and new directors. They just brought in a crop of four new directors, which was a meaningful percentage of the board. And the question in the room turned to, well, how are decisions made? We had a conversation about what decisions does a board make and what decisions does a board not make because a board and management aren't the same thing. There's a reason why a board hires, whether it's a head of school or a CEO or an executive director, but there are decisions for a board to make. And then we discussed, once we have clarity, what those decisions are, what's the process for making those decisions? Of course, we want them to be data-driven, absolutely. And while there is leadership in a board, there's a chairman and a vice chairman, et cetera, When we're casting votes, everybody has the same one vote. And if the chairman is just looking for yes-men, there's no point to have a board. Just give him your proxies. He'll have seven or 12 votes, whatever it is. And everybody else can go home and not come out once a month to a three-hour meeting. So I think the idea is, of course, we want to tell people, bring us your ideas. Tell us how we can do our business even better. Fight. Advocate passionately for what you believe. Sometimes you'll impress upon your boss the merits of your argument and you'll win the day. Other times you'll fight a valiant battle and the consensus will be not like that. 
but whether you get your way, so to speak, or your, or your idea doesn't carry the day, you at some point need to fall in line. And I tell that to people on all levels of an organization, you're being hired not just to weld rivets, not just to punch a timesheet when you come in and punch a timesheet when you come out. Part of your value is your ideas, is the creativity you bring as a person and also from your seat within the organization, which is uniquely yours. Fight for your ideas, advocate for them cordially but passionately. But once a decision's made, that's then the decision because otherwise there's complete anarchy. Two final questions for you. Question number one is what fires you up? Like what keeps you inspired and pushing forward in terms of your own personal and professional growth? I think something that's really simple, but for me is really profound. I really believe that people are good. And management leadership isn't about telling people who they should be, telling people what they should do. Leadership needs to be 90% about making sure the good people on your team have the resources that they need to do their job as best as possible. And if you see yourself as a force multiplier, if you see yourself as someone who exists to serve people within your organization, I don't think you get burnt out because you're investing in people, not in things. So that's what motivates me. I love solving problems. I love fixing things. I was not blessed by being particularly handy in a mechanical sense. So this is my industry because I get to tinker with things and, and try to move organizations forward. And in your experience with these and many other, you know, very impressive, very large global organizations, what do you feel like is the biggest opportunity, or if you want to read it, challenge that are facing the Jewish people that these organizations should be focusing on? And how would you go about solving them? I, I think there are a lot of the greatest challenge facing our, our community's organizations. One of them is a generational challenge that millennials, and by the way, there's going to be a generation of young people after millennials. That's a whole other subject of conversation. How will we keep them engaged? But look, in philanthropy in general, there's atrophy for giving parochially, for giving to our community, whatever the definition of our community is, young people tend to eschew ethnic, cultural, community-based giving and in favor of new, more agile organizations and more universal organizations. So philanthropically, that for sure is a challenge. But programmatically also, we need to toe a line between making actual impact whether we're impacting people, whether we're impacting the environment, whether we're impacting some other segment of society, between making demonstrable impact and affecting a large number of people. If you have a large nonprofit that fundamentally transforms and saves one person's life, that's amazing, but that won't be a game changer. If you impact 100,000 people but so marginally that really nothing changes in their lives, I would argue also really what have you done? So as people become savvy, as people approach their philanthropy really as an investment, and as they're exposed to ever greater professionalism in all of the other areas of their life, 
their nonprofit engagement, whether it's through philanthropy or volunteerism of their time, needs to have the same level of professionalism for them to be sustained partners in our work. And that's tough. Rabbi Lech, thank you so much for your time. Where can people find out more about you or be in touch? People can certainly be in touch via LinkedIn. I think for better or for worse, I'm the only Herschel Lutch that's out there. <laughs> and that's a good point to start a dialogue. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time. 100%, Jacob. Thank you. There you have it, folks. Another inspiring episode. If you enjoyed this, I ask you to please share this with your friends and to like us over on Rabbi Rupp through Facebook or on YouTube. And the more that we're able to get these important messages out, the more that we can really make an impact in the world. So I encourage you, please, to stay tuned. Uh, we have a ton of amazing speakers coming up and also to tell your friends about it. Thank you very much.